So this past week, <laughs> we had, uh, Melissa and I went and had dinner with the Pitsons uh, on Friday night. They had some friends that were up, and, um, and they wanted us to come meet them. They were from Minnesota. And, um, and while we was getting to know them and, and kind of talking with them, uh, Ron had pointed out to them how important uh, interpretation of Scripture was for me, how serious I take and how, how um, concerned I am about when I preach the Word of God, regardless of where I'm at, that uh, I, I don't come in with an agenda. And anyone that knows me knows that I don't have an agenda when I, I begin to study and to preach the Word of God. Um, and what I mean by that is because we are non I am a non-denominational pastor, I don't have a list of denominational uh, uh, doctrines that I have to, to find Scripture to back up what I believe. When I go into a section of, of Scripture, all I'm worried about is what does it say? What does it mean? How does it apply to me? What is the correct interpretation of, of this section of Scripture? Uh, that's what I... That is my number one concern is proper and accurate interpretation of Scripture. I want to know what Jehovah God intended in that section of Scripture. What was his purpose for having it put down in writing? And I believe that one of the most important parts is to consider it in context. That's why we do verse by verse. That's why we do chapter by chapter. That's why we do book by book. It's so that we keep everything in context. Anybody who comes to my Sunday school classes or into my Sunday night study, one of the things that we generally do is back up so that we get the full context of the chapter that we're studying at that time. Because context is important. It is so important that we understand what's going on in that section of Scripture that we're looking at. Now, when I went to Bible college, they taught us some really big words. And those words were supposed to make us look smarter. So I'm going to use them this morning, hopefully that it'll make me look smarter as I talk. Uh, so one of the first words that they taught us was hermeneutics. Now, hermeneutics, in a shortened definition, there's a long definition as long with that long word that goes along with it, but hermeneutics, in a shortened definition, is the interpretation of the Bible, how you interpret the Bible. It's called hermeneutics. Um, but within hermeneutics, they have what they call the law of hermeneutics. And so anytime you study the Bible, and the reason I bring this up, it's so important in Revelation because sometimes there's a lot you got to figure out and you got to know how to study it in order to, to pull out what you, want, you need to pull out of it. But within it, you have the law of hermeneutics. There are certain principles that you must consider and maintain in order to get a proper interpretation of any scripture. You have to maintain these rules and these laws in order to get a right interpretation. And the problem you have is too many people first have an agenda. They come in with a preconceived idea, and so now what they have to do is they have to find a verse in the Bible to back up what they believe. 
That's called eisegesis. Another big word. Do I look smarter yet? <laughs> Don't laugh so hard. That is not funny. <laughs> but this is the problem. Many times when you come in with an eisegesis interpretation, you end up with a wrong or a false meaning for the scripture and the way it's being used. When you try to back up an idea or an agenda, it is too easy to pull Scripture out of context and to make it fit. I can make the Bible say anything I want to say if I pull things out of context. And, and I just I do away with the whole hermeneutics and the law of the hermeneutics. I can make the Bible say whatever I want. That's where cults come from. I'll give you an, an example. And I find this a minor uh, eisegesis, I, I, this is not one that typically I don't correct people over this one, but I cringe every single time I hear it. I was talking to a, a gentleman just the other day, and <coughs> he was telling me a story. And he had started talking to somebody, and as he was talking to him, this, this person started telling them about a, a lot of problems that they were having in their life. And... Um, and he had asked this brother if he would pray, if he would have the church pray for him because of all these uh, family problems. And he looked at me and he said, and so what I told him was, the Bible says where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst, so let's pray. He said, so we prayed right there in the store. He said, we prayed for their problem. That is an eisegesis. Is that what the verse says? Yes. Is that what the verse means? Let's look at it in context. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15 through 20. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with you two or three more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglects to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen, man and a publican. So what is the context of this section of scripture? It's talking about church discipline. It's talking about dealing with a brother or sister inside of the church who has sin in their life. That's the context. Moving on, it says, verily I say unto you that whatsoever you shall bind on the earth shall be bound in heaven. And so whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say unto you that if two or three shall agree on earth as touching anything, they shall ask, and it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And so what he was saying, he said, listen, when you deal with church discipline, he said, first you go to them in private. If they still don't pull away from their sin, you do it semi-private. You take two or three with you. If they still won't stop, you make it public. And if they still won't stop, he said, put them out of the church. And he says, and when two or three of you agree on this, I will agree with you. 
I will be a part of that group that says you have to go. That is the context. Now, in principle, where two or three are gathered, I am in the midst, and you say, well, where two or three of us are gathered, God is with us. In principle, that is true. God is omnipresent. That means he is everywhere at all times. So it's kind of a redundant statement. And as I said, that is kind of a minor eisegesis. I don't, and like I said, it kind of annoys me, but I don't usually get bent out of shape over it. It's like, okay, you know, we've heard that forever to justify small gatherings. But in context, that is not what it's about. Um, so the problem with an eisegesis, as I'd mentioned earlier, is that this is where cults come from. They pull scripture out to back up what they believe. But what you need is not eisegesis. Here comes another big word. It's exegesis. Exegesis considers the text. It considers the context. And then it considers whether there are any other references in other parts of Scripture. So when you take a, a part of that Scripture, which is what we're going to do today with Revelation chapter 12, is when you take that part of Scripture, you look at the text, you look at the context, and then you see if you can find it anywhere else inside of the Bible to, to, to back up what it says. Because the greatest commentary of the Bible is the Bible. I can tell you whatever I believe. You can great, pull up some of the greatest commentaries that there are, but the greatest commentaries of the Bible is the Bible. When you find something that you, you believe it says this, you need to find it somewhere else in Scripture, and therefore it will commentate for itself. And whenever possible... I believe in a literal interpretation of Scripture until that is not possible. One of the biggest challenges that we have in Revelation is trying to determine what is literal and what is symbolic. If I can take it literal, I will until I can't. I watch for hints that tell me that it's symbolic. I watch for little words, words like as or like or signs. Those are little words that tell you that this isn't literal, that when you look at it, you need to figure out what it represents, what it is symbolic of. And today we're going to see the word sign which is going to tell us that this isn't literally, but it is a sign of, of something that's coming on. Um, when you see a curve ahead sign, the curve ahead sign is not the actual curve. It is a sign of something that lies out before you. And when you get to that curve, does it literally look like a, a little line with a big arrow at the end of it? No, it's different, but it tells you and it, it, it warns you that something is ahead. 
And you don't get all caught up in the sign. So Revelation chapter 11, and this is one of those things where we need to back up just a little bit to keep everything in context. So Revelation chapter 11 verse 19 is where we're going to start, and then we'll pick up discussion at, at verse 1, 12, 1. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings <coughs> and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hell. And there appeared a great wonder in the heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of the heavens and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. And we'll stop right there. So the first thing we see is as we pull away from this uh, uh, vision of the open temple. Remember, we've seen the open temple and the ark inside, which talked about the promises were fulfilled, the doors were open, and now we are allowed into the blessings, the fullness of the blessings. And so we pull from that vision now, and John says, I seen a great sign. So the question is, is this literal or is this symbolic? The hint lies in the word sign. In the, in the King James, it was translated wonder, but most translations use the word sign. So we've already determined that a sign is a symbol that points to a reality. So we understand there, that there is not literally a woman standing in heaven clothed in the sun, standing on the moon with a crown of stars on her head. That is not literal. It's symbolic. There is not literally a red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns waiting to devour this pregnant woman's baby. It's not literal. It's symbolic. So our challenge now is to figure out what these symbols represent in these signs. First off, one of the things I want to point out is as John looks at these signs, he uses the word great. This is the word mega. Mega signs, mega dragon. In verse 3, we see mega wrath. In verse 12, we see a mega eagle, or verse 14, mega eagle. 
So this means that these signs are either huge or they are significant, very significant. Now, within the law of hermeneutics that we talked about earlier, there is a law called expositional constants. Another big word. This law says that when there is a figure of speech that is used in the Bible to represent something, every time that figure of speech is used, it will represent the same thing. And I'm going to give you an example. So when Jesus would give a parable, and Jesus would say inside of that parable that there was a field, and he explained that the field represented the world. Every single time there was a parable, every single time it would be used in other places, and it spoke symbolically of a field, we know that according to this law, every time the field is mentioned, it represents the world. Every single time. That's called expositional constants. It's one of the laws. So, the question is, is there anywhere else in Scripture that these symbols that we just saw, speaking of the woman with the moon and the sun and the stars, is there anywhere else in Scripture that we can find that we can use this expositional constants? And the answer is yes. In Genesis chapter 37, verse 9 through 11, listen to this. Now, this is Joseph. Joseph has had dreams. Joseph had dreams. If you remember, Joseph was a dreamer, and then he was an interpreter of dreams. But Joseph had a dream. It says, then he had another dream, and he told to his brothers, listen, I had another dream. And this time, the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And when he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream that you had? Now listen, Jacob, who is Israel, that's important that you understand that. Jacob's name will be changed to Israel. Jacob is about to tell us what this dream is. Will your mother and I, which is the sun and the moon, and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in his mind. He kept this dream in his mind. He never stopped thinking about it. And so here we see those symbols, right? We see the star, we see the sun, we see the moon. Jacob told us that, that, that it represented him and his sons. It represented Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, there were only 11 stars in, in Joseph's dream because Joseph was not one of the stars. In Revelations, he's one of the stars. So, what we see here in chapter 12 is just a little bit different, but very similar. So the woman that is clothed in the sun, if you remember, the sun was who? Israel, Jacob. So the woman is clothed in the sun, and it, it points out that Israel is exalted. The fact that Israel 
the, the woman is standing on the moon, it shows that she is exalted. Israel is exalted. Now, of course, the crown, this word crown here is, is Stephanos, and we know that is the victor's crown. We've talked about that many times. The 12 stars is the 12 tribes of Israel, including Joseph. So, the thing is, anybody can take this interpretation and either use it as an exegesis or an eisegesis. And too many peoples, this is not a universal understanding that this is speaking of Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel. There are actually those who, who take it to back up what they understand it to mean instead of what Scripture in, says that it means. Um, Christian science says that the woman is Mary Baker Eddy, which was their founder. So Christian science believes that the woman here is is, uh, Mary Baker Eddy. The Catholics believe that this is speaking of uh, Mary. Um, Although Mary is a part of the process, this is much bigger than Mary. This is mega. This is Israel. It goes farther than one woman. It is the nation of Israel. <clears throat> and then even some Christians want to get involved here, and they want to throw their two cents worth in and say that this is speaking of the church, and the child that is born is a super saint. Well, we have some problems with it being the church. Because everywhere that you see the church represented, she is always a bride, never a a wife until we get into the latter parts of Revelation. And she is a chaste virgin. So if if this is the church, she's got some splaining to do. So this cannot be the church. We know it's not Mary, and it is not Mary Baker, Eddie. It is Israel. By using expositional constancies, we can go back to Genesis and see that this is representative of Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel. And then it says, she cried out with a great pain to give birth. You see, we see two different periods within this process. We see the pregnant woman who is having great pains in her, in her pregnancy. So before the dragon came to devour the child that was to be born, the first thing the dragon tried to do was to, to destroy the woman. If he could destroy the woman, he could destroy the child before it was ever born. You see, most of her pain has been of Satan and his attempt to destroy Israel over the many, many generations. You see, no nation in history has suffered the persecution that Israel has suffered. Think about it. No nation in history has ever suffered as long and as intense as Israel has suffered. So look at verse 3 again. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. 
And behold, a mega red dragon, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. Now, here we see another sign. So once again, it tells us this is symbolic. This isn't literally a dragon sitting before the woman to devour the child. And we don't have to go very far in order to figure out who this dragon is. If you'll look over at verse 9. And the great dragon was cast out and the old serpent called the devil and Satan. So we don't have to travel very far. We don't have to go all the way back to Genesis to figure out who the dragon is. We see it right here in verse 9. Verse 9 tells us that this is Satan, the devil. Revelation is the only place in Scripture that calls the devil the dragon. This is the only place. Now, the Hebrew word that's translated dragon also means monster or sea monster. So, we get this picture of a large, ferocious, terrifying reptile. Now, the red references, it made, John made sure to point out that this dragon was red. And we seen red back when we seen the horseman. Red represents blood. It represents fire. It represents destruction. And it said that this dragon had seven heads. And it also had seven diadems. Now, the diadem crowns are different than the Stephanos. Stephanos is victor. Diadems is royal. It is power. It is authority. And so we see that the dragon has seven heads with seven diadems. Now, commentators believe that this represents the seven consecutive world empires that are running in course under Satan's rule. And those would be Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persian, Greece, Rome, and then we still got one left that's coming, and that would be the, the Antichrist future empire. And that would complete the seven heads. Now, the ten horns, so you have seven heads, you have ten horns. The horns represent the kings who will rule underneath the Antichrist. If you remember, horns are power. It's what, what an animal fights with, is with the horns, so it represents power. So they will be the ten kings that will be under the Antichrist. Now, in verse 13, 1, we see the ten diadems will shift from the heads down to the horns. So in other words, all the power of the seven, uh, of the seven nations will be given to the ten kings under the Antichrist. They will be the most powerful of any nation ever made. All of the power from the other six will come into these ten kings. And then it says, so now we go from, from the present or we go to the seven-year tribulation and it takes us all the way back to before man was even created. 
And it says that the tail swept away one-third of the stars. So here we go back again, and we look back at expositional constances. So what do the stars here represent? Back in Job, we see that angels are called stars. So what this tells us, and we see it again in, in Revelation chapter 9 and verse 1. And so we see here what it says is that, is that this dragon swept a third part of the angels from heaven. He deceived them. He took them with him. One-third, think about that, one-third of the angels. But don't forget this, that means there's two-third good angels left, right? We don't worry about the bad angels. There's only a third of them that went bad. There are two-thirds that stayed good. So one-third of the angels were deceived into following Lucifer. So how many is one-third? It doesn't tell us. But as we saw in chapter 9... We saw two instances where demons were released from the bottomless pit or from the bottomless shaft. And then we've seen 200 million demons who joined the four demons that were released at the river Euphrates. So we know there's at least 200 million plus those that were released from the, the shaft and those who are wandering around on the earth right now. So there's a lot of demons, a lot of demons, millions, trillions, gazillions, but there's a lot. But never forget that however many demons there are, there are twice as many good angels as there are bad angels. Don't ever forget that. When the battles are fought, it ain't like we're undermined or overpowered. But it says that, that one-third of the angels were, were swept out of heaven. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 through 15 says, How you have fallen from heaven, you star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who defeated the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be brought down to Sheol. The recess of the pit. You said, I will be greater than God, and God says, you're done. You will leave heaven. Now, understand this. T scripture teaches us that, that at this point in time, Satan has access to God. We see that in Job. But there's a time coming, and we're going to see this battle that's going to be fought in heaven. We're not going to get to it today, but there's a battle fought in heaven, and they will be expelled from heaven forever. But it says that this dragon stood before the woman. Listen, from Genesis on, 
when God declared that the woman would bruise, the woman's seed would bruise the head of Satan, Satan has sought to destroy the Messiah before he came. When it talked about the woman being in pain, the, 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 the torment started in Genesis. He has attempted to stop the seed. First, he tried by killing the righteous line when Cain killed Abel. And it didn't work. And then Pharaoh tried to kill all of the male babies. First by the midwives, and then when the midwives wouldn't do it, he, he pulled everybody in. And what happened? Moses was saved. And so that didn't work. Satan used Saul to try to kill David to stop the Davidic line. And that didn't work. Twice, twice. We were talking about this in Sunday school class this morning. Twice in the Messianic line, it dwindled down to two single babies. Twice. One baby we find in Second Chronicles 21, 17, which is Ahaziah. And then again, which is our Sunday school class this morning, we were looking at Second Chronicles 22, 10 through 12. And Joash was the last remaining royal line. Yet God preserved that line down to a single baby. And once again, Satan failed. Satan used Haman to try to do away with all of the Jews. And then enters Esther. And Haman is hung on his own gallows. And when all that failed, Satan attempted to kill the Messiah himself. He couldn't kill the woman. He tried to kill the woman. All the pain that she went through, he tried to kill the woman, and he could not. He failed at that, and the time came that the Messiah would be, be born. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 says, When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared. That's talking about the, the wise men. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Verse 16 says, and when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinities who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. And so Satan had attempted to kill the woman. He was unable to kill the woman. And so he turned and he put his focus upon the Messiah. And again, we see in Luke chapter 4, verse 28 and 30, and all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things, speaking of Jesus talking to them. And they got up and they drove him out of the city and they brought him to the crest of a hill on which their city had been built. And don't you just see Satan there going, oh, this is it. This is it. I got him. So that they could throw him down from the cliff. 
They drove him out. They drove Jesus out of town so that they could throw him off of a cliff because he claimed to be God. Verse 30 says, but he passed through their midst and went on his way. They couldn't stop him. Satan had failed once again. Israel had brought forth the Messiah, Yahshua HaMashiach, just as God had promised. And can't you just see him with glee as Jesus hangs upon the cross and he takes his final breath? And Satan said, I finally defeated him. He's dead. But you forgot something, Satan. You forgot. What did Jesus say? He said, behold, no one takes my life. I freely give it. It wasn't Satan that took his life. It wasn't the Jews that took his life. It wasn't the Romans that took his life. Jesus said, I gave my life freely to them. And three days later, Satan had failed again. He had failed again. And now as he attacks Israel and he continues to attack Israel, it is just pure hatred for the woman. He can't stop the woman. He can't stop the the Messiah. He can't stop the man-child. This Messiah was in the line of David, just as was promised. He was a son of Abraham. He will rule with an iron rod, Revelation says. This is speaking of during the millennial reign. Listen, this is the idea. He will swiftly and immediately deal with sin. We, now we get away with it. We do things that we shouldn't be doing. But during the millennial reign, he will rule with an iron rod. You will obey. If you're there, you will obey whether you want to or not. Now that was prophesied. We see that in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 through 9. I will, procl- I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. This is speaking of the Messiah. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth, your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. There will be no league of nations. There will not be groups of nations. It will be one king, and that will be King Jesus during the millennial reign. That's it. That's the only one. And he will destroy all nations. He will rule himself, and he will rule with an iron rod. And it says that he was caught up to his throne. That speaks of his ascension. That speaks of when he was resurrected. Now, verse 6 really goes with this section. But as I began to study verse 6 and I began to look deeply into it, there is so much in verse 6 that I don't want to shorten up. There's so much I don't want to leave out. So we're not going to do verse 6. I'm going to tack it on at the beginning of next week's message so that we can get the full package of verse 6. 
We're going to see war break out like we've never seen before. So Israel, Satan, and Messiah. Just remember, Satan failed every single time. And he will continue to fail every single time. You have nothing to fear. Do you understand that? You are a child of the king. You have nothing to fear. Greater is he that is in you than anyone that is in the world that will come against you. Don't fear what's going on in our nation right now. Don't fear what's happening around you. Because greater is he in you. You have nothing to fear. Don't fear the corona. Don't fear the, the, the leaders. Don't fear those. God has not given you a spirit of fear. Do you understand that? You be safe, you be smart, and you trust God. Would you stand to your feet? I have to say these are some exciting times. I read these. And I think, oh, Lord, how close we must be. I have no intentions of witnessing any of this other than through the gates of heaven. But, man, is it fascinating. Oh, man, there's some good stuff coming. When we look at chapter 6, I'm telling you, God does some incredible things for Israel and the protection of Israel. Absolutely incredible. And I, you will laugh when you hear what he does. Father, we thank you for this word. What an encouraging word. What a wonderful Sunday school class we had this morning. And what a powerful message you've given us today. And God, we are so thankful that you remind us. And you remind us constantly, God, that you win. The enemy has come about like a roaring lion. He has tried to destroy the pregnant woman. He has tried to destroy the child. And God, he has failed on every level. And you say in your scripture that he will fail in the end and he will be cast into the pits of hell for eternity. God, may we never forget we are on the winning side. It doesn't matter what the battles look like. It doesn't matter what storms are raging around us. God, we win in the end. We win because we are your children, adopted, grafted in by the blood of Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you for that. And now, Father, as we conclude this service, I pray your blessing upon your people today. May their cup runneth over. I pray they leave with their heads lifted high today, encouraged and excited about the things of God. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' very precious name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.